wouldn't you rather be a hero, an unknown hero, to some other unknown hero, than just another wage earner? The battlefield of the future will be populated by several intelligent, multiple intelligence species, and humans will be a very important among them, but still just one of them. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandsbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Alexander Cott, Chief Scientist of the Army Research Lab. Dr. Cott will be talking to us about the Internet of Battlefield Things and modernizing the Army. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you for having me. You know, you've you've had obviously a lot of experience, um, and we've had you as a mad scientist for several years now. Um, but can you tell our audience just a little bit about how did you get into science and research, and specifically with the military? So if you could just tell us a little bit about how you uh, came to be the chief scientist of ARL. Yeah, chief scientist and a mad scientist. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, you know, my story is. Perhaps not the most common story for a uh, chief scientist of a major uh, research organization of the United States military. I was born and raised in in the evil empire, evil empire otherwise known as the Soviet Union, and um, I uh, came to this country as a refugee in uh, the uh, fall of 1980, right before the elections that brought uh, President Reagan to power, uh, and. Uh, I started as a uh, as an engineer at a manufacturing company. Uh, then I got bitten by the bug called artificial intelligence, and I got into artificial intelligence. I uh, got into a PhD program that was focused mostly on artificial intelligence in application to engineering because I was an engineer, so it was an application to engineering. And then I worked for a uh, one of the um, few AI companies that existed at that time. You wouldn't believe it, but uh, AI is a very old industry, and uh, some of the first well-known AI companies existed back in 1980s, so I was with one of them, which was an offshoot of Carnegie Mellon University, was called Carnegie Group, and there I developed a number of projects with uh, AFRL, with, uh, uh, with some army research organizations, and then with DARPA, until about, until uh, after 9-11, when I felt like, well, can I do something more relevant, more direct, something. So I called some people I knew uh, at DARPA and they said, well, listen, uh, why don't you apply for a job as a DARPA program manager? We, we always need program managers. I probably was the first person, maybe, uh, with such a relatively unusual background to apply to a job of a DARPA program manager, or at least being accepted to, to that job. It took them about a year to figure out what to decide, but eventually I spent about six years as a DARPA program manager. It was a great time. Uh, much of my work revolved uh, around 
command and control, uh, regarding uh, machine-assisted decision-making, uh, artificial intelligence, things like this. And then I uh, uh, went to, I was invited to join the Army Research Laboratory, where I spent time as a division chief of the Network Science Division. Uh, some of my work had to do with uh, use of uh, machine intelligence in application to cyber defense, defense of networks. And about three years ago, uh, I was appointed the chief scientist of the Army Research Laboratory. So that's my story. Throughout all these years, apparently I was a latent math scientist until you guys discovered me and I became an actual math scientist. Well, I, th I think there's clearly uh, some convergence between when we declared you official mad scientist and then you became chief scientist of ARL. Uh, obviously, there a, is a, a clear path. correlation. Clear <laughs> correlation. So I would highly recommend other or others to to explore that path. I, I think you know your your background is so interesting. And then when you talk about AI early on, um, you know we had we had um, Dr. Jaime Carbonell from from CMU before. He oh, was one of the co-owners of the company. That uh, that uh, oh wow I um, I worked for and and talked about how the, you know the the mathematics behind it was you know the theories were there um, and then you know uh, as of late a lot of the technology is caught up um, and the computing power and everything else in order to kind of make some of these um, theoretical designs start to happen and I think your background in both um, artificial intelligence and command systems led you and your team you, you did some incredible work with the internet of battlefield things so can I just ask you for as you talk about IOBT how do you see the Army and really the larger DOD? How do we operate in that kind of congested space where there's just emitters and sensors and all these smart devices everywhere? You're absolutely right. The uh, trends of the last several decades and probably several decades going forward are uh, very much directed by these uh, two major uh, phenomena one being the uh, everything becomes smart everything becomes intelligent everything be, uh, acquires some degree of uh, thinking abilities and everything becomes connected everything uh, somehow talks to something else so these uh, the trends that have driven many things and they will continue to drive many developments in technology and, and our life in industry and in warfare so the battlefield is becoming saturated with various devices that can uh, do some degree, some kind of computations and eventually uh, some thinking or something that looks like thinking and that they communicate. They can communicate. And when I'm talking about these devices, I'm not talking about just devices that we, uh, the U.S. Army and our allies, own that we bring to the battlefield. Uh, the battlefield, uh, this, this in fact will be a very small fraction of the uh, communicating and thinking devices on the battlefield. There's a much broader universe of devices out there. Well, first of all, the devices of uh, our uh, opponents. There's no reason why we shouldn't be using the devices of our opponents in order to communicate, in order to obtain information, in order to uh, uh, to do whatever needs to be done on the battlefield. Then, of course, there is an even larger, much larger universe of uh, for civilian devices. And assuming that laws of armed conflict allow us to do so, and assuming that the, um, the government, for example, of the host country where we're operating gives us the right to do so, 
we certainly can use some of those devices in order to communicate, in order to uh, obtain information, collect information, in order even to produce certain effects, to create deception on the battlefield, which is foundation of all warfare, and so on. So all this is the universe of the Internet of Battlefield Things. That's why I, I believe I was the one who actually coined that term, the Internet of Battlefield or, uh, Things or Internet of Battle Things. I think so. We've been giving you credit for it anyway. Okay, please give me credit. <laughs> Put it down somewhere, please. <laughs> and uh, so I, I inserted that word, Battle Things or Battlefield for a reason, because this is a network which is very different from uh, uh, any other kind of Internet of Things. It operates in a highly adversarial environment. It is there to defend itself from being killed, mm -hmm. and it is, frankly, out there to deliver uh, decisive effects at the enemy networks. It is unusual in that it is a network that we don't necessarily control directly. It, we don't necessarily own it. I always say we really never own our network. We co-own our network with some other people that we don't necessarily want to co-own it with, but we have to. So uh, the point is, it, there's a c complexity of a network which f defies uh, imagination and which is way beyond anything that we know today how to design and control and manage and, to un and understand and even visualize somehow, uh, we will need a whole new engineering, a whole new science about how to deal with this kind of complexity. Now, complexity also can be very good. Complexity is a great place in which uh, we can hide. And hiding on a battlefield is a good thing you don't want to be visible. So when you have this extremely congested space, look at it as something positive, something good, something that you can actually use to uh, uh, hide from the enemy. So there are interesting challenges and opportunities in that space. If, if IOBT uh, you know, continues to expand, we're not really going to be on battlefields as such in the future, or at least we don't think we're going to be more in battle cities or dense urban areas. So I was going to ask you, and you actually ended your answer with the exact question, what are the challenges and opportunities the army or, or, or the military will have in, in dense urban environments? The point is, it is a combat multiplier, a massive combat multiplier, and perhaps a... Uh, a major domain of warfare in its own right. In fact, um, the electromagnetic space, uh, the uh, electromagnetic uh, and electronic warfare and cyber warfare are becoming a domain in its own right, perhaps one of the dominant domains of the future. And Internet of Battlefield Things is essentially a step toward thinking about that form of a battle domain, warfare domain. So ARL is a huge component of what Futures Command is doing, trying to modernize the force and advance us uh, in the future fight to MDO. Um, what are your biggest priorities to make that happen? What are the biggest roadblocks to that? ARL is probably not a huge component. It is probably important and hopefully hugely important component of uh, the Army um, Futures Command. Our mission is to look at technologies and technological opportunities of the future, looking at uh, mid to long term, uh, let's say 20 years from now. 
And 20 years from now is a long time and a lot of things can change. So we have to be selective about where we put our research dollars, uh, recognizing that certain things that are very important today may not be important 20 years from now. And things that are not perceived as important today may be extremely important, crucial 20 years from now. So that's a, a difficult balance, uh, and so we have to look at long-term trends. Perhaps the most important long trend of all is uh, artificial intelligence. You know, if I lived in the 14th century, somebody asked me, what's the future of warfare? I would say, gunpowder, gunpowder, gunpowder. And everybody would say, well, it's really not that important yet. Yes, I've seen a few of these things, uh, you know, those metal tubes that you put some stinky stuff into and it fires some uh, pieces of stone. <clears throat> Is it really that important? And I would say, well, it will become much bigger. It will be everywhere. And hopefully I would be right. Today, if somebody asks me a question like this, I would venture to say it will be AI, AI, AI. And people would say, well, yes, but uh, there's so many limitations and it really doesn't do very much yet. I say, yeah, this is just the beginning. It will be more and more out there. So uh, one of our major uh, so-called essential research programs, one of our flagship programs, of which we have about 10, uh, is uh, about AI and machine learning, particularly AI for maneuver and mobility on the battlefield. Uh, we decided to focus particularly on maneuver and mobility because it's so important for the future combat vehicles. Uh, it also creates a foundation for many other AI-driven things, so we don't think we're focusing too narrowly at the moment. Of course, once you have all these uh, artificial intelligent things on the battlefield, you have to ask yourself, what happens to the humans? And the assumption, I think, should be that humans will still continue to be the most important species of intelligent life on the battlefield, but perhaps just one of the species. In effect, the battlefield of the future will be populated by several intelligent, multiple intelligence species, and humans will be a very important among them, but still just one of them. So the question becomes how humans operate in that battlefield where they have to coexist with all those intelligent other species. You know, we humans are not known for being uh, very good at living with others. We can't even live very well, collaborate very well, even with our own species if, if we are somewhat different by, uh, you know, by uh, beliefs or color of skin or some other differentiators, or what we perceive as differentiators. I think it will be challenging. And so one of the major uh, essential research program, programs at the Army Research Laboratory is human and autonomy teaming. How do we team with those other artificial intelligent beings? Uh, this opens a whole huge, enormous line of thinking. And uh, yet another one, of course, is that all of this is going to be vulnerable. All those, all those artificial species will be tremendously vulnerable to new forms of lethality. Electronic warfare, cyber warfare, and uh, we have to take a completely new look at 
how do we defend this new society of war fighters, which is largely consisting of these artificial entities which are vulnerable to uh, electromagnetic and cyber influences? How do we protect them? How do we defend them? How And how do we defeat uh, the artificial intelligent war fighters of our opponents, which obviously will to a significant extent similar to to ours. I think those are fantastic insights. So we have, you know, throughout the Army Labs, um, I've met some of the most brilliant engineers and scientists, um, but that competition continues to grow. Um, and you can see it today from chief information officers leaving for um, private industry. Um, so in your opinion, sir, you know what, you have a great perspective of dealing with all these different scientists and engineers. How can we um, continue to compete and hopefully win in that space? Space so that we can develop the technology necessary. I see this competition as something we probably want to view as opportunity rather than a threat. I think we're doing fairly well in that competition. We shouldn't. I shouldn't minimize some of the challenges there, but on the balance, we have more opportunities than threats in that space. Let's talk about the uh, the obvious fact that so much of the uh, United States um, science and engineering and technology is, well, I would even use the word dominated by uh, foreign-born scientists and engineers. You go to our best uh, universities, you go to the computer science department, and uh, you you will be hard-pressed to find somebody uh, who speaks English without an accent. And uh, yes, there is a phenomenon of some of these people uh, moving to the countries that are not necessarily friendly to us and who may, in fact, be our peer competitors in future armed conflicts. I think if you look at the balance, and I'm not convinced that we have done a very good job actually looking at the numbers, the balance is tremendously in our favor. And I suspect that it will continue to be in our favor uh, as long as we are uh, attracting so many brilliant uh, people from all over the world by being an open society, a compassionate society, a fair society, a society that is offering people opportunities regardless of where they came from uh, and where they stand uh, politically, religiously, race-wise, and so on. Um, this is tremendous draw. There are so many people who are dreaming about coming to this country, and uh, it's so many uh, people who are... Uh, extremely talented people. So as long as we can be wise about it and thoughtful about it and continue to be the uh, beacon of freedom and hope, the competition will be in our favor. Now, as far as competition with the industry, I almost think this is an oxymoron. Why do we feel that we are competing with the industry? We are working with the industry. We are collaborating with the industry. We are benefiting from the, from industry. One of the things that we've done at the Army Research Laboratory is this concept of uh, open campus, which was uh, very much commended by the Congress uh, about a year ago or so. And that is a notion that uh, we want to collaborate. 
and we want to open our doors. We want to open our facilities. We want to open our engineers and scientists and the data and our projects. Well, not all of them, obviously, but a significant portion of them to collaboration with just about anybody in the world. Industry, academia, uh, domestic, foreign. Please, come over. Sit down with us. Let's work together. Let's collaborate. Let's talk about it. Let's find the best solution. It is a win-win. And we have tremendous number of collaborative research and development agreements with industry. We want some of our people, in fact, we don't get enough of our people to move to industry and work there. And then, come on, guys, if you want to come back, give me a call. Let's talk. In some cases, we have an entrepreneurial leave program. You want to start a small company? By all means, go. Start a small company. We will hold a place for you. You have a guaranteed job to come back to. I think that's such a great different perspective from, uh, like you said, from the looking at it as not a threat, but opportunities. Um, and that's that's such a big part of how we can hopefully you know win in that competition space. Um, so really, ARL along with um, all the CCDC labs, uh, the cross-functional teams, there's a lot of work being done to build essentially the future force. What it was is you know this future force. So we're looking at MDO uh, capable within uh, 2028, and then talking about MDO ready by 2035 is is the mark on the wall. So if we if we develop all these technologies, if if we get everything we want, what does that future force kind of look like? Obviously, uh, can't give me an entire order of battle, but what, what does it kind of feel like, look like? How does it fight? Let me try to give you a few thoughts about what will be different. In every war, people fight in a way that is somewhat different from the previous war, but to a large extent also similar. So we shouldn't, uh, in my opinion, over-exaggerate the drama and the extent of those differences and changes. Uh, It will be different, but it will not be dramatically different. One thing that will certainly happen is what I already mentioned, and that is enormous proliferation of Artificial, artificially intelligent war fighters of all kinds. Sensors, data collectors, scouts, trigger pullers, and uh, tanks, and uh, missiles, and, and so on and so on. They will constitute a dramatically higher fraction of our overall force. And this is entirely consistent with historical tendencies. You look at the middle of, uh, say, 19th century, and the dominant things on the battlefield were humans, humans with muskets and rifles and so on, and horses. A few decades forward, and horses are almost gone, and humans are surrounded by so many more things. I think that trend will continue. Humans will continue to be very important in warfare, of course, but they will continue to constitute a diminishing component of the overall force. Where do we hide those humans? How do we protect those humans in that highly lethal environment? So I think there will be a a very different attitude towards how we uh, employ the human human war fighters and how much attention will be paid to protecting them. So a lot of those artificially artificial warriors will be dedicated to protect to protection of human warriors. So that may be one important component of what we will see. 
we will also see increasing range. Every war has seen greater and greater ranges at which we could affect the adversary and which adversary could affect us. Starting, uh, let's say, civil war, um, mid 19th century, uh, we're talking about maybe uh, 2,000 yards was approximately the limit at which you could possibly do any damage to the, to the opponent. You move forward few decades, you're talking uh, you know, early, late 19, late 1800s, early 1900s, and you're talking about an order of magnitude greater range. Uh, then tactical aviation appears and you could do yet another order of magnitude. Uh, now we're talking about essentially ground warfare that spans the globe. An army missile can potentially be uh, intercontinental. An artillery piece could potentially be spanned a large fraction of a globe. So the ranges will be dramatically greater. And that will probably significant difference in how we will fight. We will have to change our ideas about the distances. It really changes the battlefield calculus. It, it changes that calculus. And it changes relation with those other services that in the past uh, were operating at those ranges. Uh, Army suddenly becomes comparable in range to Air Force and Navy. Uh, so suddenly uh, the notion of multi-domain operations uh, becomes uh, uh, justified on physical grounds. It is the same range. It is it, the, an ocean is no longer a, a, something that stops the army from operating. So uh, this is another uh, huge difference. So much more in warfare will start be driven by the degree of intelligence of our weapons and munitions as opposed to the sheer power of them. It will become perhaps less, uh, less about how much kinetic energy we can pack into ammunition, for example, as opposed to how smart that munition is, how it can see the weak point at the enemy uh, target, how it can collaborate with other friendly munitions to attack uh, in collaboration with them, and so on. So the intelligence will become perhaps more important than just basic power of energetic materials. Uh, so you had, you had talked earlier about competition, and we're in competition with uh, certain countries that may not be friendly to us in the future. We're also in competition with those with those countries on our technological development, and one of those is AI, and, and that's a priority that you brought up. So how do we keep pace with those other countries? How do we maintain that competition? How do we win that competition with some other countries that may not hold the same ethics or moral values that we do? How do we still get to where we need to be if we have those restrictions on us? I think the history teaches us that those who violate, who fight immorally, eventually lose. They may have some significant advantages for a period of time, but eventually they lose. Eventually, somehow, the immorality comes back to haunt them in various ways, in political, in social, but very often even in technological. In technological, because once you put your bets on something that is unethical and immoral, eventually it becomes, for various reasons, difficult to use, and you are left without sufficient investments into other 
appropriate forms of conducting warfare. That's a hypothesis. I would like to believe that it is a, a correct hypothesis. I am not convinced I have very strong evidence for it, but it is something that uh, we all would probably want to believe in. And so uh, I would suggest that we proceed under the guidance of this hypothesis. And uh, if we think that some forms of technology, some forms of warfare technology and tactics are immoral, unethical, then let's not do it. Uh, let's be aware of it. Let's not be naive about it. Let's be prepared to uh, deal with it and defend ourselves as needed. But let's not follow that path because it's probably a wrong path and will not lead us to victory. You know, Dr. Khalid, you again, we've talked about your experience and where you're at today. So if you're talking now um, to the scientists and engineers of the future um, that are going to be graduating from these schools 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what do you say to them in terms of, you know, why would they want to work uh, with the DOD? Why do they want to be a part of this? You know, let, let me just first comment on um, this notion that um, we see some noticeable number of people uh, objecting to high-tech companies working with military or for the purposes of defense uh, or military as they see it. I think this is a phenomenon which has been around before. Look at some of the sentiments that, for example, uh, uh, were prevalent in 1930s in United Kingdom where it was a much stronger sentiment, I would say. I think we shouldn't exaggerate or over-exaggerate the uh, significance of, of that phenomenon. I see endless number of brilliant uh, scientists, young scientists, who are very eager to work uh, for defense, who recognize the need to work for defense, who are proud to be involved in defense. Uh, so it is a... We, we are a complex society with variety of subcurrents and subgroups and subcommunities. Uh, there is always some element that uh, there was always some elements of the society which uh, will feel differently then than others. I would not be uh, negative or overly concerned about it. I, I often talk to people who are about to finish their PhD dissertation. That is some of the most interesting category of people for us. People who are about to finish their PhD dissertation and are thinking about where to go, where to work. I tell them that, first of all, they will be working with some of the most amazing people in the world. They will be working with some of the brightest scientists and engineers that can be found anywhere. And not only within your organization, not only within, let's say, Army Research Laboratory, if they join the Army Research Laboratory, but worldwide. We have tremendous collaboration with academia, both in the United States and in other countries they will have an opportunity to work with just about anybody. This is not something that would come easily to them if they uh, go, uh, go and work for a major corporation. They will have very impressive facilities, some of the best facilities, some of the best equipment, some of the best availability of data, some of the best availability for opportunities to experiment. 
uh, as compared to what's available anywhere in any other corporation that they might join. They may or may not, they probably will not make as much money, but 20 or 30 years later, they might look back and may realize that all those stock options didn't go anywhere and that uh, they invested tremendous amount of effort into something that really doesn't feel all that satisfactory. And that's probably the ultimate argument. I tell them, listen, you will work on something that is truly noble. You will be working on ways to save the life of a, of a young man or a young woman who is not perhaps born, even born yet. It's truly altruistic. You will be helping somebody whom you will never know, who will never know you, and yet you will be doing enormous service to those people. More important service than you can ever do to anybody by working even in some of our most profitable corporations. So think about it. Wouldn't you rather be a hero, an unknown hero, to some other unknown hero than just another wage earner? I think that's very well said. That was that was uh, to all you graduating PhDs. Please listen to Dr. Cott, and uh, we'll take your applications to Army Research Lab or, or any of the CCDC labs. So, Dr. Cott, let's let's transition a little bit. We're going to get into these quickfire questions here. Um, first, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Very long-range, intelligent fires will or may become a very serious threat to our homeland. Our homeland may no longer be as defensible as it used to be for centuries. What's something about you that most people don't know? And we learned a lot about you from the first question, and you gave us your background, so, so give us something new. What's something about you that most people don't know? I'm a scuba diver. Uh, this is my hobby. I love scuba diving. Um, uh, tremendously enjoy being underwater and uh, in a world of silence. Okay, I don't know how we're going to do this last question. I'm going to ask it. What is your favorite movie? And if that doesn't work, can you just name a movie that you've seen? We'll go from there. I uh, rarely watch movies. I watch them only uh, when I fly on... Uh, <laughs> on a plane. <laughs> and uh, I try to see something that uh, that is a classical cultural icon of this country. So I recently watched, first time in my life, Casablanca. I enjoyed the movie. I saw all the naivete of uh, some of the portrayals there, and yet there was uh, a sweetness and, and beauty in it that is uh, uh, very touching. And I also think uh, it is not a bad illustration of uh, uh, the situation in which some of uh, Americans find themselves when they go to foreign countries even nowadays. Dr. Cott has proven that uh, Matt and myself, uh, where we've gone wrong is we spent too much time on movies and not enough time on science. Um, th this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate all your insights. Is there anything else, you know, any, any last thoughts you had for our audience out there? Look, it was a great conversation. Uh, there's so much more I could say. <laughs> so, uh, you know what? I'm on LinkedIn. Send me a message. Connect All right, me. that's where you can follow Dr. Cott. Um, he puts out a lot of great papers, uh, things that we use all the time on Mad Scientist. So this has been a great conversation, um, and thank you very much, Dr. Cott. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Convergence. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Alexander Cott, Chief Scientist of the Army Research Lab. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. And be sure to subscribe to The Convergence wherever you get your podcasts.